Good morning. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for gathering us together to study your word and to learn your wisdom. We pray that you would lead us always more and more to trust in you and to look to you for every good thing. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. All right. Everybody got a handout? No. Let's... That's the important thing. Okay. So, I saw, Pastor Nelson sent me his handout from last week, and it looked like it looked like a. I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but it looked like a very interesting subject um, based on the chapters in the book. But maybe you can just. For, it's always nice for the sake of refreshing our memories and for instructing me. What uh, What did you talk about last time? I won't tell him that you don't remember. So, you, so now you can just make something up. and Babies, okay, all right. Babies change lives, okay, good. That's, what are the ways babies change lives? Now I have an advantage because I just looked at his handout. So. Right, oh, okay, so now, yeah, okay. What are the ways that uh, you gleaned from the reading? What were the ways that they changed Jennifer's life? Do you remember? She went from not believing in God to believing in God, but she couldn't understand that this little baby could just appear. And previously she thought that we were just the function of right. neurons firing and all those kinds of things. But when she looked at that baby, she said there's something more. Yeah, how, how could, she, couldn't, she had no explanation for why she cared so much about this little baby. I mean, she did, she did sort of hint at one point, she said, I suppose I could say that it's sort of the, 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 the yeah, hormonal evolutionary biological response wanting me to, you know, further the human race. Uh, but but she, didn't, she just didn't believe it, right? Because there was something more. It, it was, uh, it was um, a stronger sentiment than that. What else? What, in, what other ways? Okay. Um, how so? This is good. How so? What did she do that seemed that became irrational? Right. She would, yeah. Nobody was allowed to hold the baby on the kitchen floor, yeah. five feet from the balcony window. Right. Um, so now, and this this led her then to this point, um, a really kind of a turning point where she realized. That she was that she was praying, right? Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. It was this. Uh, it was there was no content specifically. I don't think, right? It was just sort of a silent prayer, but it was out of concern for her child, right? I heard a radio story one time, and the the phrase that stuck with me was, uh, "It was while I was on vicarage." Um, it's the the fellow said, "Having a child is the biggest investment in a future that is." completely out of your control. So like, there are lots of futures that you can control to some extent or another, but having a child is, you're, you're saying at some point, it's going to be out of, completely out of your control. And so she, she was experiencing that trepidation, um, and it led her to pray, because she cared. She cared about her child. Okay, any, anything else from last week? Any other? And, and I say she became... Good. Okay, now this is really important, and this will play a role as we go along in the book. Um, 
at, at one point in, uh, no, it's the, next, it's the next section. We won't get there. We'll wait till next week. All right. But yeah, you're right. Because she's becoming less self-absorbed. She's thinking about not her future only, but her child's future. Jan. She stumbled across the book called The Cage for Jesus. Right. Yeah. And, and somehow she, her curiosity is, is, is peaked. She, she assumed that it was going to be a disappointment, but when she opened it up, she found it. She couldn't put it down, right? So in some ways, and I think that this is part of her whole argumentation, is she discovered that what she experienced as a child is again occurring now that she has a child. This, this uh, sense of the purposeless of, purposelessness, meaninglessness of life if death is the end. And it creates this vacuum, this void in her life. And, she, and, so, and so in a, in a sense, this book, The Case for Christ or The Case for Christianity, The Case for Christ, Fills it just gets sucked right into that vacuum and and uh, and so she's open open to considering it. Marilyn. Well, the interesting thing you know, she was an atheist. I mean, she didn't really even think about it. She didn't go up to anybody and say, "I'm an atheist." Right. She had this book. She wanted people to notice. Yeah. She was reading this book that she was like borderline Christian. Yeah. <laughs> and she thought everybody would want to talk about Christianity, and nobody could. <laughs> yeah, the scene. The scene in where, where is it? Is in they're in Mexico, Mexico or something like that. And the, and the the bus boy is like, "You've been here since breakfast. I don't care. What, I don't care what you read." Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's um, let's move on to this week's chapters. Um, chapters twelve through fourteen. Now, I wrote this handout, and I when I write handouts, they always end up looking more like lecture outlines from seminary than I want. So, so I don't want that to be the case today. Um, these questions are not, I'm not trying to box us in. So, the, so that means what I want to do is begin um, with uh, the story, and I want you to tell me what the turning points, what stands out to you. What are the things that, that really uh, struck you from this, this week's reading? If you can sort of separate this week's reading from other weeks. Jan. The isolation that she was feeling even though she was living in her mother's house. Right. Because her husband was still trying to get the moved out of the condo and stuff into the storage closet, and he was working 14 hours a day trying to get their business going, and all she had was this little kid, and you can't do adult conversations <laughs> with a little kid. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. And she also, I mean, she expressed at one point how um, she had all, a mil, all a millions, millions of thoughts about what she was reading as well, and she had nobody, nobody, to, talk nobody to talk to. Yeah. And a couple of people that she might have found would have cared less. Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's definitely um, also a source of crisis in her life, too. So you, you, I think you realize in those kind of situations, so, so they have so much stock placed in the future of this business and the way that they're setting up their lives. And what you... You know, when you're in those situations where you're driving really hard, you have ambition, and the goals are within reach, it's you don't ever think about, you know, what happens if this, what happens if this fails, what happens if, you know, her husband doesn't pass the bar exam, what what are, what is going to drive our life then? Um, and she's sort of sitting there by herself in isolation, and she has has nothing else to think about. Which they, she had just moved, so she wasn't anywhere near. Her old friends that she had. I think right. Those of us who are mothers, if we've gone through that situation, you move from one neighborhood to 
different neighborhood, it's like, you know, especially if you move a few miles away, and way back when, we used to only be a one-car family. That's not something that you find these days anymore, yeah. hardly, but, yeah. you know, I mean, you were stuck. Sure. So, the, so, the, so generally speaking, the circumstances are really setting her up for trying to figure things out, right? They're conducive to, the, to whatever's going to happen next. What else? Uh, what are the other turning points? What other things are going on in the... When she seemed to have it down here, when... Now you're cheating. You have to... Well, no, but that, that you're at, it, it, it is kind of pretty. She's talking about, she's been out here, she's been out here I want a night off. I want to go out. Right. I want to go back to my old life. Yes, okay. But at the same time, even when she's are going, she, you know, that's the old life, but that's a different me. And she's yeah. in, in this swirl of figuring things out. Right, and, and now, so this is, this is important. Um, and this is the answer to the first question there under chapter 12, I think. She, um, she's always operating with this presupposition that, that where she's headed is where her life was before. That's what she wants. She wants to get back to that. Um, and we'll find out later, I think. I haven't finished the book. We'll find out later that there are real challenges to that, right? Um, but, but I want to talk about that a little bit. So let's, let's think about this chapter 12 here for a second. If you have any other, uh, other important things that come up, uh, let me know. But these are, the, these are the things that stood out to me. So in chapter 12, she and her husband go to this restaurant. Um, and, and Clifford Antone is there. I don't know. Is that name familiar to any of you? No, I tried to look him up. I looked him up. He looks like uh, Jim Belushi. Not what I expected. Um, I tried to find some of his music, but I couldn't. Uh, there wasn't any on Spotify. No, he's not. Yeah. His associates with Rawls and Pena. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it was. Uh, so anyway, that's neither here nor there. But um, they had this conversation and. The, this quotation from the conversation really struck me. Uh, Clifford is talking about his life. You know, he's had this. Tr- he's had. He's been in jail. He's in prison for drugs, and this is what he says about his his life. He says, "My life has always been one way up to this point, and now it's like I'm starting over, trying to do it right this time. It's not always easy, is it? You try to make changes, and everything gets tough. Sometimes you lose things, like friends." And this really resonates with Jennifer. She says, maybe it's the margarita, but she starts tearing up. So what I want to ask is, how, what, is she, what kind of change is she thinking about here? What kind of change is she considering um, that isn't easy? How does, this, how does this relate to her in her present frame of mind? Yeah, in her way of life. Okay. Did she think of it at this point in terms of Christianity or just the physical moving away and losing touch with her old life? I th- see. Now, I, I think that she was in. That's right. Yeah. And so I think that. So what I want to suggest is that this is kind of this is foreshadowing. Okay. So she right now she's just thinking in terms of, well, she had a child and they're giving up all these things in order to start this business and it's tough. It's tough, um, but they'll get it all back eventually, right? That's not really what Clifford Anton is talking about because the, the change that he's talking about is a, is a complete change, right? So 
he can't ride in the limo with his friends anymore because they're going to smoke pot. He can't do it. It's, that is gone. That part of his past is gone. Um, so now, I, I sus- I have, again, I haven't, gotten much fur- I haven't gotten further in the book than this section, so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here. But I suspect that uh, we're going to find out that other changes are involved in her life when she becomes a Christian. So the next question is, and this is really a broad question, what kind of changes in terms that, in the terms that Clifford is talking about, what kind of changes are involved in becoming a Christian? What do you have to give up, Lindsay? I was going to say lifestyle changes. Yeah. Um, she was so focused on, uh, I don't know if it's in the section or not, but on the, on the house and the area that she was living in. And it, was, it was very much a status. Okay. Now, now uh, why does that have to change? Or why would that have to change? Because it's so focused on you. Sure. Okay. So your orientation, yeah. Generally, and so and it's, this is she's starting to realize this having a baby. Um, it's not all about her. Okay. Um, what else? What else do you have to? What else has to change? Well, and, and again, with the lifestyle, with at dinner, it's like well, let's have a party. Right. They were great. <laughs> probably still are in a different way. Um, hosts. They threw sure. good parties. Somebody brought in a lot of people. Had good food. Space on the floor or yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, and, and so that, now this is this is important. The reason is not because partying is bad or because having a nice house or status, none of those things are bad, right? Uh, and 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 so and this is why I think it is kind of deceptive. So what she has to give up is her way of thinking about herself, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think that identity was partly that experience she had when in the quarry or whatever that was where she suddenly realized that life was meaningless and the only way I could be happy is to just flood myself with right. wonderful experiences. Right. In, in a sense, okay, so try this on. She, she concluded um, and, and practiced in her life the thought that uh, life will be meaningful if I make it all about me, right? If I fill it with all these experiences that are just about me. So finding happiness, experiencing these joys, I'm going to drive my life towards this purpose. I'm going to, we're going to aim for success. We're going to, um, we're, and now it, it is interesting, um, her husband makes a comment about doing business that really helps people, but in a sense you can still do you know, business that really helps people for selfish purposes, right? So that you can pat your back on the back. I, oh, great, I'm, I'm successful and I'm helping people. I got, you know, <laughs> I'm doing great, okay? So, so um, the void that was crea- that's created, she can fill by thinking about only herself. When you become a Christian, you discover um, that it's not about you at all. Or your life is not about you at all. It's about living for God and your neighbor, right? It's, it's completely different. Okay, Jeanette. Well, she was always in control. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. transitioning to letting go of some control and trusting. Yes. <laughs> right. And this is one of the most challenging things about the world is that, so, that I don't know, some, I won't give a percentage, but very often it feels like uh, you are directly, the, you're the, the cause of the outcomes in your life, right? So you go to the right school, you take the right classes, you interview for the right job, you have the right internship. I mean, this is, this, I, this is what I was taught growing up. You make, the right, you make these smart choices and everything's going to pan out for you. 
Um, and, and that's true even on a smaller scale, right? So you shop organic, you're going to be healthier. You know, you do, all, you do all of these things. And oftentimes it works out that way, right? Um, and it, but it's deceptive because all it takes is one tragedy and you find out that, like, or, or one moment of reflection and, and, and you find out life is outside your control, right? Mary, did you have your hand up? One second. One of the responses was a letter from a pastor, um, and she was really surprised by the letter because it wasn't like all the other letters. He wasn't um, wasn't judging her, wasn't making, uh, wasn't trying to convert her. He was, in, in a sense, just befriending her. Well, the long story short is they they have this they have this uh, friendly neighborly relationship for the course of the next two years, and she becomes a Christian. Uh, she marries a man. She has a family. She stops teaching, um, you know, in the, the lesbian the, uh, lesbian studies at the university. What I wanted to share with you is part of an interview that she had uh, on a radio program. She got a lot of publicity, uh, as would be expected, because she was a big hitter in her field. Um, and she had this. She shared this interview, um, and in the course of the interview, she talked a little bit about what it, what she had to give up becoming a Christian. And it's, it's things you might expect, but she's very insightful and reveals a lot of other things too. So this is what was prompted by, by uh, Clifford Antone's comment. Um, let me play this for you. It's about six minutes long. Um, I think you'll find it insightful. If not, don't tell me. <laughs> a lot of churches on the outside this is the host of the show. look like they're for clean living types, as you put it, not for people with messed up lives. But you didn't find that in this particular church where you, you saw there were others struggling with their sins, and, and that yeah. was a comfort to you, you say. It was. It was. And, you know, I did not find a perfect church, but I found a church where, you know, one of the, as an outsider, when, when, when I realized people were praying for me, that made me uncomfortable because it felt like I was being objectified in a particular sin formation, and I didn't like that. But one of the realities is if you pray for somebody for years, you love that person. Prayer has a way. The Lord works with our prayers in such a way that create in our hearts a love for the very people we're, we're most threatened by. And so when I did walk through the doors of that church, I found friends, friends I hadn't met yet. And I also found people who were not threatened by my candid and direct questions, but instead people who themselves had been searching the scriptures for the very same answers that I was. Um, they were obviously much further along the journey. And I remember at one point confronting just the reality that if I were to become a Christian, I would need to, to give up my girlfriend, right? You know, this is it. And I remember saying to Ken, you know, this is so unfair. What does everybody else have to give up? And Ken's saying, well, I don't know. Why don't you go ask him? Oh, that's <laughs> great. And so the researcher the candid New Yorker researcher, and we just can't imagine this, walking around a Reformed church. Okay, I've got to give up the girlfriend. What do you have to give up? <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> you know, right? And it was amazing. You know, people answered my question, and they answered it in such a way that I realized that, you know what? True believers have to give up everything. Everything. I, I mean, I met people who had buried children, more than one, and whose faith was still strong and still vital. You know, and I realized, wow, you know, that person had to give up a lot of bitterness 
to be a Christian, it was always deep. It wasn't just the material things that people had to give up, but also the the emotional barriers. And it was really then that I started to think about it. You know, well, what is the root of my homosexuality? I mean, is you know, what is the sin here? And you say it was good that they didn't tell you uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life, but instead <laughs> said, hey, it's going to be messy. Christ's death is sufficient. Right, and on that right. on that secure foundation, you can go forward, and but it's going to be messy. Right, absolutely. Nobody said, um, I have yet to hear in any of our churches the prosperity gospel. <laughs> Nobody said this was going to just be great, but that it would be vital, that it would be life-giving, that it would be nurturing. You know, one of the things that I was coming to realize in Christ is that no longer are you alone with your fears, that if you're a Christian, you never have to face the fundamental, unbelievably weighty aloneness of life. And, you know, even common grace doesn't go deep enough to fill that void or to answer that terror. And so at some point, the messiness of your conversion is it's a secondary reality. It's, it's still a reality, though. It's first about Christ and what he's done. And then yes, it is. The, the mess that that makes of our lives. Right. That's right. And, and it was shocking to me. I will tell you that as a peace and social justice advocate, I had long for many years believed that I was on the side of the uh, disempowered. And so it was a harrowing reality to discover that even in the supposed goodness of that paradigm, it was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Wow. And, and then, you know, after I became a believer, that even became more of an undoing, because it wasn't just Jesus, right? It was my Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, my friend, my King, my Redeemer. Hmm. Um, and so, in some ways, you know, that was, in many ways, that was a more powerful reality than the complete disaster I had just made of my, say, professional life, for example, <laughs> um, which was pretty, pretty much of a mess. I can um, imagine. But, you know, part of why I, I wrote Secret Thoughts was I wanted to capture the inner landscape of conversion and the inner landscape of the Christian life, because that's the real part for Christians. All right, I'll stop it there. That interview is about 45 minutes. There's a, just for the sake of interest, if you, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of really good stuff there. Holly. I mean, it, like I have to go with my girlfriend. She just knew, and I think that's so, and that feels like, yeah, there's some things that we just know and we have to give up, and yeah. we really can't move forward until we do. Right. Um, and so these stories, her story and Jennifer's story, um, are about conversion from uh, 
a, a, a lifestyle which is completely opposite to Christianity. But I think it's important to remember. Um, one of the, so here's a bit of trivia for you. When, uh, when the Lutheran confessions, written in Latin, talk about conversion and repentance, they often use the same word, right? So Martin Luther talks about how the first of the 95 theses was that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance, a life of conversion. So, uh, and another theologian once said, this stuck, has always stuck with me, uh, Christian is never, a baptized Christian is never more than a day old. So if you put that in perspective, you realize that the kind of, uh, the kind of, you know, the kind of sacrifice in a, in a very real sense that these, the, that these ladies undergo to become Christians is in a, in a very same way the kind of sacrifice we're called to every day, right? Um, and, it's, and what it's not is sacrifice in terms of externals. It's not just about material things, right? And it's not just about giving up something which is, which, you know, is too much of the world perverse. She was giving up uh, the, her, her closest relationship, her love, right? Which is, you know, all things, it makes it, it, makes it miraculous um, that, she, that, that she was converted. Um, but that's what Jesus means also when he says, uh, if you love father, brother, what, father, mother, sister, brother more than me, right, uh, the kingdom, you don't belong in the kingdom of God. Um, and this is very hard, right? This is, this is very difficult. Um, but she talks about how uh, it's, it's God who, who does this. It's God who prompts it. It's God who, who brings this about. Okay. Lindsay. Right. Can you, I mean, just imagine uh, the, her thought about bitterness. They had to give up bitterness. That is uh, something for, <laughs> for us to always remember. I think about the same thing in terms of re- re- resentment and contempt. As a Christian, I need to give those things up. I need to give up being resentful and being contemptuous. Those are things. So now it's easy, it's easy in a sense to give up external things and say, uh, and, and to be sort of proud of yourself. But we, we cling to these things that we hold we hold, I mean, we hold resentment close to ourselves. We, we just love to be resentful. Oh, what's that? Or being a dork. Or being a dork. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's required to be a Christian. No, I think it's Oh, okay. I got to do my homework. Mary. Also, when you hold on to that resentment, you become a victim. Yeah, right. And who in this room wants to be a victim? Nobody. Yeah. I know I've been re- reading this one book called Jesus Calling, Calling, and I always thought I was in charge of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Yeah. I have to put God first, then my husband, then my children. And unless I do that, it's Jesus checking his first block. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we do it on a daily basis, too. Yeah. That's right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which, which is why I think learning these conversion stories, and this is why conversion is such a big deal in the, in the New Testament. It's not because it's a, it's a document for proselytizing. It's, I mean, it is an evangelistic document, but it's also encouragement for believers. So if, you know, if she can give these things up if by the power of the Holy Spirit, then I can be, I, the Holy Spirit will... Likewise, empower me. And she talks, I mean, the interview is great. She talks about later, I mean, some really challenging things for somebody who's lived a lifestyle 
a certain way for so long, um, she describes a lot of things as muscle memory, right? And, and overcoming that, it's not, it's not about uh, being completely liberated, right? These things, that's, this, is part of, this is the definition of original sin. We're always brought into temptation by our sinful nature. Um, but being converted, being, being led by Christ is about uh, receiving forgiveness and, and trusting in him that he, he's dealt with the problem. It reminds me of when we sang after offering, I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving, yeah. which for the longest time confused the heck out of me. Yeah. It's like, well, uh, why is being thankful a sacrifice? And that made no sense, but it's making more sense. Before this too, but sure. It's kind of, it's like you're, you're giving up, attributing everything to yourself. Right. Giving up control, but that's freeing in the fact that then you don't have to right. take responsibility for all of the things that <coughs> you feel like you have to do. Yeah, and, and, and it, so it turns, that, that talking about sacrifice that way sort of turns the paradigm upside down. And this is, we see this all over the Bible. This is very, I mean, this is, if you can orient your thoughts about sacrifice in, term, in the way the Bible speaks about it, uh, it it's very helpful. Um, it's not about offering to God things that He finds valuable. It's not about giving Him. It's not about giving Him your best, or uh, uh, you know, appeasing Him. What does He say? Uh, the sacrifices of God are a contrite, a contrite heart. A, a, you know, um, a broken heart you will not despise. Right. And, and what is contrition? What is a brokenness of heart? It's claiming nothing for yourself. It's trusting. It's, it's humility. It's, it's knowing that God is um, your only hope. All right. Yes. Right. Right. It, in, in a sense, it frees you from, from having to do it all at once, from having to be, become holy, right? It's not going to happen, yeah? Um, and it, it also, because, because there's no set of steps where you can measure progress, it, it also helps you. I mean, so, okay, so it also, it, because there's no, like, okay, I've reached level five, I've reached level six now, it makes you come back to the, the, the obvious abundant sources of grace that we have, right? So this is why we've returned to the Eucharist all the time, because we need the same thing now that we needed at the beginning, right? It's always the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, reliance on that is, if you're going to measure progress, that's what it is, right? It's, did I, have I come back to what I needed before, you know? Okay. Donna. I missed the first part of your comment, um, that you said it was, uh, it was Jesus I was yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah, that's right. Social justice. She was this advocate. Yeah, she, I mean, in her description of what she does. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, she. So she. So she. They did all of these charitable things, or all of these social justice things. Like they ran a. Well, just for her. Her. Her partner was an animal lover, so they ran a. 
Rehabilitation Center for Abused and Abandoned Golden Retrievers. But that's not the, the big deal. She says they were, uh, their houses were, they had two, were hubs of intellectual and activist work. We support a lot of causes, AIDS, health care, children's literacy, sexual abuse, healing, and disability activism. So, like, now, and this is, this, uh, so, <laughs> to come to the realization that your life's work has been all wrong-headed, I mean, that is, that is stark. Um, but again, it's, not, it's nothing different from what, what we're called to, right, um, every day. When, because we discover all the time that we're doing things that we consider to be good, um, but, but calling something good which God doesn't call good um, is to do things backwards. Okay. In that, uh, go ahead, Mary. You know, and this is this observation about how how instrumental people are is another is you know it's another it's another facet to the story too. So if you if you understand these conversion narratives, you realize that it's not it's not um, somebody had a vision, a revelation, somebody had a dream. That now, which isn't to say that doesn't happen. In fact, uh, there's this interesting phenomenon among Muslims in countries where Christians are persecuted, that conversions are, most of the conversions of Muslims in persecuted countries, in, co- in countries where Christians are persecuted, they, they say, I, I had a dream. Anyway, that's, the point is, um, God's normal, his normal means of, of saving people is uh, through, through the relationships that draw people to his gifts, right? And so it's, um, it's not that somebody, occasionally it happens, but it's not that somebody just sort of stumbles up to the altar and they receive God's gifts unknowingly. In fact, it doesn't work that way because it needs to be in context, right? I wanted, so I had a lot written down here, and uh, um, I want to take a moment, and I'm, I'm going to just go with a digression here. If, if you want to bring me back, that's fine. Go ahead and interrupt me. But um, So one of the reasons why, so, she, so Rosaria talks about how uh, she thought she was doing good, social justice. She realized she's persecuting Christ. I think we're going to find the same thing with Jennifer. So again, we're getting ahead in the story, I suspect here, but I think it's helpful to sort of anticipate what's going to come. Um, We're going to find the same thing with her. She's going to discover, probably, that the things that she counts to be good in life are, in fact, not the things that God calls good. And I want to just give you a... some, some Bible passages to hang your hat on here in terms of understanding what it means to call things good, to know what the good is. And this is, what, this is one of the real challenges for, uh, this is one of the challenges of being corrupt people. 
is that we don't know what is good, right? We just don't know. We have a sense. She talks about this in the next chapter, so here we're transitioning to the next chapter. She has a, we have a sense. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this universal morality. We'll talk about that some more. But we don't know what is good. And here's, how, here's, the, here's a biblical way to think about it. I'll just read to you some passages here. In Genesis 1, when God creates the world, we did this last time I taught, um, what does God say about all creation? It was good, right? He says it over and over again. And God saw that it was good, right? So God is the one who calls things good, who judges things good, and who, in his proclamation, says that something is good. He's the one who determines whether it's good for us or not. He says to Adam and Eve, here's a tree in the garden um, which is not good for you, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it, you will surely die, right? So now what happens? Satan comes along in chapter 3, and he says to Eve, uh, did God really say you shall not eat of, of, of uh, any tree in the garden? She says, no, 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 it's just this one tree. And he says, if you, if you touch it, you'll die. And the key, the key part here is, so Satan's trying to convince her that what God says about the tree, that God says is not good, um, is wrong. Eve finally says, or Eve, Genesis finally observes here, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. So notice the contrast here. In creation, God sees that the things he's created are good and, he's, and he calls them good. Eve looks and she's listening to the wrong person and judges. She says, this is, this is good. I see that this is good. It's good for eating. This happens all the time. Uh, and this is sort of the paradigm, this is the fundamental problem, when we look at something and say, that's good, when in fact God says it's not. It happens again um, in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, this is right before the flood. And, now, and this is more foreshadowing here. Um, in the Bible, the words in the Old Testament, the words for good and beautiful are often interchangeable. And in fact, what's the, sort of the standard word for, for good, tov, um, is often translated as beautiful when it's applied to a person in particular. So here's what it says in Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, beautiful, tov, good. Now, what's the problem here? God, later we hear, just in the next couple of verses, we hear that they're not good. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, right? So the sons of God looked at the daughters of men and said, they're good when, in fact, they weren't. And that was, they were, they were judging wrongly. Let me give you one last, well, two more examples. This is great. I think this, it's, it, it shows up all over the place, and it's really uh, a helpful paradigm here. In Judges, um, we hear about Samson. Samson does the same thing. He goes to find a wife, and he says to his parents, she's good in my eyes. She was a daughter of the Philistines, the very people the Israelites were supposed to wipe out. And, and he goes and says, you know what? She's good. Um, the last example, then, is a similar one. In Second Samuel 11, you know this story. David is on the rooftop, and he looks at Bathsheba, and he saw that she was tov, beautiful, right? Um, something that wasn't his. He was, he was claiming to be good. Okay, so I, I think it's a helpful paradigm for understanding um, why it's so, for one thing, why it's so difficult to be a Christian, because we are always learning what is good. We don't know. We don't know by nature what is good. In fact, by nature, 
we think things are good that aren't good. We call good evil and evil good. This is Luther in the Heidelberg Disputation in 1519. The original sin is that people call, we call things good that are evil and evil good. And that makes you a theologian, it makes you a theologian of glory as opposed to a theologian of the cross. Now, okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm getting way out of hand here. Okay, <laughs> let's get back to the book. Um, all right, <laughs> any questions? Does that make sense? All right, uh, let's look at chapter 13 for a second here. And uh, maybe it's just to stick to the script because I, I can get way out of control. Um, <laughs> why is Jennifer so engaged by C.S. Lewis? Nancy. I think it's partly because she had been pretty much uh, instilled in her by her father. She should always be rational and think things through. And Lewis laid out an argument that was very clear, um, yeah. rational, and, and could really appeal to her. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. He also was an atheist. He, it, that's right. He had undergone a conversion, similar conversion, right? And, yeah. And he was like uh, well-educated. That's right. Right. Yeah. It, um, Rosaria Butterfield, Champagne, Champagne Butterfield. Rosaria talks about um, something similar. She, so she's an English professor, and she talks about how she assumed that all Christians were bad readers, which is when you, when you hear that, when you hear the way uh, Christians often use the Bible, uh, it makes sense, right? It's so. I mean, and and, and the reasons for this are, are are actually pretty obvious. When when you take the Bible to be an authority, um, it's easy to just say, "Well, look, here's this authoritative passage." Bam, case case closed. Well, um, and it, from somebody who doesn't take the Bible to be authoritative, that doesn't carry any weight at all, right? You have to be able to be a good reader, um, be intellectual. You have to be able to speak clearly, and, and in a rational way, and. You know, C.S. Lewis does this. I don't know if you've ever read *Mere Christianity*. Um, it's it's very compelling, right? He makes these arguments that are uh, very compelling arguments. What now? What was the main ar- the the argument here that uh, she's most attracted by? Right. 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 That's right, yeah, everybody knows, so, so everybody knows that there is such a thing as good and evil. Um, and in fact, it, moral philosophers observe and, and uh, uh, anthropologists observe that across cultures, um, the fundamental moral principles are pretty uniform. So for instance, there's no such thing as a culture which is founded on the principle that lying is okay, right? It just doesn't work. Or that theft is okay, you know, or that... Or, or even that murder is okay. I mean, now we push the boundaries of that um, all the time. But uh, at the very least, what C.S. Lewis observes is that um, people, are always, people always try to justify their position that in terms of some higher standard. So uh, if you're going to say that killing somebody is not murder, you always have to say, well, it was in self-defense, right? You don't just say, it's okay to kill people. You say, I was doing it out of self-defense. Um, and so, therefore, there, there you're justifying your position. You're holding it to a higher standard. Does that make sense? Does that argument make sense? Here's, um, here's the summary I have here. He, Lewis writes, the moment you say that one set of... Mo- oh, here's an- it's a, it's another facet to the argument. The moment that you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. So we have this universal principle, this universal standard, which everybody appeals to. Now... 
One of the tricky questions is what, and I write it here, the, th the third question, what does his argument show and how does it relate to Jesus? This is where things get maybe a little bit messier. How does, the, how does a universal moral principle relate to Jesus? Sure. Whereas Jesus says this is the right way, but I forgive you when you don't. Right. Okay. So absolutely. So there's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, so it's objective. It's rigid. It's objective. Um, it's absolute. Um, and it's it's just. It, it's it's the, so there's no so either you're in or you're out. Right. Either you got it or you don't. Um, now Jesus comes along and. Uh, and breaks the mold by, uh, by forgiving sins and by having mercy and love trump justice. Right? So, so in, a, in a very real sense, you can't get, you can't get to Jesus um, through a universal moral principle. Right? Because if you, if you assume that the defining characteristic of God is that he is the definition of morality, then you have a God who's going to kill you, Right? Um, and this is this is the way religion, uh, self-made religions, have always worked. So this is why why uh, sacrifices are offered to God to appease Him, because you just hope that God is going to let let you go on this one, right? Because you know that something you've done something wrong. Um, okay, so it doesn't get you to Jesus, um, but it, what it does do is it sort of debunks the the argument that Christianity is irrational, that believing in God is irrational, or that believing in a moral absolute, moral objectivity, is irrational. The, all, so, I mean, nobody, hold, nobody can consistently hold that position, that there are no moral absolutes. Nobody could, nobody could justify their life if they held to no, no, no such thing as morality. So now, um, I, I want to... Lewis talks about morality in particular, but are there other... I think this is interesting to consider. Are there other universals which, which we can appeal to in the same way? So not everybody's concerned immediately about right and wrong, but there may be other universals that we can appeal to. What, what might there be? What do you think? Beauty and justice. Beauty and justice. Okay, so justice kind of relates to morality, but I think beauty is a good one, right? Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, transcendence. Uh, good. What did you say, Lindsay? Power. Yeah. Um, so maybe hierarchy, or that there's that there's a relationship of authority and sub submission in the universe. I mean, that the universe is ordered. Uh, this is a, so that's an interesting one. Um, I read something, an article recently, which pointed out that the whole scientific endeavor, which um, we arguably is the reason why um, evolution prevails as the, the worldview. Um, the whole scientific endeavor is founded on the idea that there's actually order to the universe, right? So you don't go out and look for explanations to things if you don't believe that there's an explanation, right? You don't uh, look for patterns if you don't believe that there's a pattern. Um, and so that, that, kind of, that kind of hierarchy, that kind of ordering is another thing that we can appeal to, right? Um, you don't expect the. I mean, you don't expect the the sun to rise the next morning if you if you don't assume that the things that have happened before are going to happen again, right? So we got and I, I want to um, just just list these out. We got beauty and order. I think that those are two 
two really good ones. What else? Anything else, Jeanette? Peace. Peace? That's the one thing, that's the one sentence I highlighted. Can you read it to us? Yeah, our yearnings for a perfectly peaceful world are yearnings to be in union with God, and that union is the entire purpose of human existence. That's right. Yeah, who would say, I'm against world peace, right? Would, I mean, but, but now it, they, they might, it, so this is, the, this is the tricky thing. So in effect, they act against it, but their idea of peace is peace in their, in their kingdom, right? Peace in an Islamic, you know, government, yeah. What struck me was Jennifer, later on the same chapter, she starts thinking of the Apaches and the settlers, and at the end, realizing that, that she is thinking of, I'll just call it conflicts in history. Yeah. That's conflicts in modern day differently. Right. Because she is like she's realizing people can't they were defending their land. Settlers were saying you know, that Yeah. And she it's a kind of a a deeper understanding or a better understanding. Yeah. Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. It, it, it really reframes the way you think about um, those that oppose the things that you value. So if you say, if you observe, first of all, that everybody, that there, that there are these universals, that unless you're a psychopath, you, you value world peace, right? You value peace and you, you, you prefer that to war. Um, you, you observe that and then, then all of a sudden the people who are fighting against you aren't necessarily fanatics. Maybe they behave fanatically, but they're, but they, but they're not completely irrational, right? Because they have a sense. They they must, as humans, have a sense for the the, the desirability of peace. Um, so then it changes the question you ask. You say, well, why, you know, why, uh, why, uh, why do they behave this way to obtain peace? Maybe that informs how we understand them, right? Which isn't to say now. Of course, the key is that. We can say with certainty that there are right, that there is right and wrong, that there is a way to peace and there is a way to violence. Um, but it doesn't mean that everybody who fights is against peace. Right? Okay. Any other thoughts or questions here? Yeah. 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 The Geronimo, Geronimo quotation, right? This is chapter thirteen. That's chapter. Really? I'm so sorry. My numbers are wrong. Ah, boy. Shoot. Okay, thank you. Just subtract one. Um, yeah, Geronimo says at the on page 83, there is one God looking down on us all. We are all children of one God. And this is actually uh, so. Uh, you may remember um, when Paul makes his address at Mars Hill in the Areopagus in Acts. Um, he appeals to the men of Athens and says, look, you've got this altar to the unknown God, and you say, your poets say, um, what do they say? We, in him we move, live and move and have our being, right? Which is kind of a, an affirmation of a creator God. So he appeals to that, that sense even there in Acts, which is what, what, she's, what she's seen in Geronimo as well. Okay. So... Um, Let's just touch briefly on chapter 13. Pat Robertson, 
Um, there's a, now, this is, a, this is a really loaded thing, and this is great. I'm glad we're not getting to it because it would be better to devote more time to it. Um, so the problem here, what's the problem uh, that she encounters with, with the whole Pat Robertson, Katrina episode? Nancy. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like the thing with homosexuality, too. You one group of Christians, well, in this case, it was Pat Robertson and one group saying, oh, that this Katrina disaster was the will of God right. punishment, and the other saying, no, you know, bad things happen all the time. It's not yeah. a biblical thing. Right, right. Um, so, so now, in terms of that argument, we have a, we'd have a lot to talk about. Um, I think you wouldn't have to look very far in your Bibles to find probably examples in, in your own mind which speak to either side of the situation. So um, God punishes people all the time in the Bible for, for sins, right? Um, even in the New Testament, there's the story. The act, I got written down Acts 5 there, Priscilla and Aquila. Maybe you remember this story. They, uh, in, the, in, the New, in the New Testament church, they, everybody's given all their goods to the church. And they've got everything in common. And Priscilla and Aquila, they sell a field and they, they say, here, we're, Peter, I think it's Peter, we're giving you everything, all the proceeds from the sale. So they hold back some of it. Um, it's not that they didn't give it all, it's that they lied about it. Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and boom. <laughs> they're dead. That's right. I know, they're toast. And, like, and the, way that, the way that Luke describes it is, I mean, it's harrowing. He says, while the footsteps of the men who were carrying away her husband's body were still audible, she, she walks in and, and he asks her the question, and boom, she's dead. So, I mean, so it sounds like they're being punished specifically for their sins. At the same time, you have all these uh, stories like Jesus says in Luke. I got Luke chapter 13 there. Um, remember the, the, some people come and say to him, what about those uh, Galilean, Galileans whose blood Herod has mingled or Pilate has mingled with the sacrifices? Um, and Jesus says, what, do you think they were worse sinners than, than you? And then he gives them the example. What about when the tire, Tower of Siloam fell and killed 30 people, innocent people? What did they sin? Um, and so Jesus says, no. These things didn't happen because they sinned. Um, and then when he heals a blind man, the same question is asked, and he says, no, he, this man is not blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, but be, in order that the glory of the works of God may be manifest in him. So on the one hand, so it, it does seem like we have this kind of, uh, this kind of contradiction. I don't, it's not a contradiction. I'm, we can't resolve it right now. We, got, we only got five minutes left. But this, so I'm kind of, I want to seed this a little bit. This is something that we should talk about. I think we will get to it later because she kind of has to come, ter- come to terms with this. Um, but you can see in your Bibles already that it's a, very, it's a lively debate. The other side of the question in this chapter, though, is not just about whether, whether we can have a perfectly good God and evil in the world, but it's about the matter of interpretation. How can, how can the Bible and Christianity be true if... Anybody can read it and get out of it just about anything they want, right? So she says, it was time to admit that Christianity wasn't checking out. There was not agreement among Christians about who God is. Christians wanted us non-believers to have faith in Jesus, but in order for that to be possible, we would first have to know who Jesus is, who Jesus is, as italicized. Um, And at this point, she she doesn't see um, any resolution to this. And I wanted to just, I wanted to share one anecdote with you, um, which kind of, I think, relieves a little bit of the trauma here, uh, a little bit of the crisis. There's a philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein, a, a philosopher of language, and he, t- he gave this, uh, did this thought experiment once. He said, imagine you got a group of people like this, and I said to somebody, go stand in the corner. 
as an experiment, not as a punishment. Go stand in the corner, and uh, that person goes and stand, stands in the corner, and we say, uh, and I ask everybody, is that person standing in the corner? And you'd all say, well, yeah, they're standing in the corner. So now I'm going to put down a piece of tape where that person is standing. And then I ask them to step over the line. And I say, well, are they still standing in the corner? Right? And there might be, I mean, probably still agree. Put down another piece of tape, step further and further into the center of the room. Now, it's evident that uh, everybody here would at some point probably say, well, no, they're no longer standing in the corner. But you have different definitions of what the corner is. Um, you're, not, you're, you're not working with the same paradigm, the same hermeneutic. But none of that discounts the fact that there is, in fact, a corner, right? It's there. You can't deny it. It's there. Right? Um, just because you have disagreement, just because you're not all on the same page about how you should read it, doesn't mean that it's, it's not there. Which raises the question, then, of how do you read the Bible? How do you decide where the corner is? And, um, and that's a trickier question, but the answer is Jesus. I'll just say that. Uh, you, read, you, you read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, right? Um, which, which does present some challenges for interpretation along the way. And people use Jesus to their advantage all the time when, when, it's, when it's not acceptable. Anyways, all of, I, I, so maybe I'm doing more damage than good by seeding all of this right now. But we'll talk about this another time. But this is what comes up in chapter 14. Do you have any questions? Anything, anything else you want to comment on here? Any other thoughts? Did that example make sense? Okay. All right. So, don't, so when, and this is raised all the time, right? This, this objection to Christianity. Got all these denominations. Nobody agrees. How ca- it can't possibly be true. Well, people disagree about all the things, things all the time. And that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as truth. All right. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.